Welcome to the second edition of The Weatherman. I am Dylan Radigan, uh, and this an ongoing and evolving experiment in a direct conversation between all of us about anything really uh, that we want to talk about, as long as it's through the frame uh, of the shift. And the shift ultimately represents a complete and total change in not just our technological infrastructure, not just our communication infrastructure, even our transportation infrastructure, but it's a unifying event and a completely shattering event all at the same time uh, that comes with incredible darkness and loneliness and isolation, as well as incredible opportunity for creation uh, and development. And you see it play out in personal lives constantly. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of those around us. And then it also plays out in an incredible way uh, before our very eyes on the biggest stage possible. Uh, the shift is an interesting dynamic because uh, as intimate as it may be for each of us, it is also something uh, that we are witnessing in the global political world, in the, in the global climate uh, situation that we're all uh, navigating or at least uh, internalizing. Um, and for that matter, uh, in the way that we, we both perceive and misperceive uh, events around the world. The premise or the theme, I guess, that we talk about uh, a lot is chaos and clarity. And the shift creates a lot of both. In fact, uh, you look no further than the American political system uh, to see the complete and utter emergence of chaos, not just in uh, the way that this country is run, but the very basis upon which uh, we are even attempting to run our country. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it because it's in the center of the news cycle right now. Uh, the criticisms that have existed from America projected into the world uh, in the way that both American political power and, and American political institutions judge and condemn and shame and sanction other countries for their political behavior, their political systems, their backroom deals, their inability to seem uh, to function in some way that is honorable, decent, has integrity or any uh, other positive value associated with it is uh, obviously deeply ironic in this particular moment uh, as the Democratic primary and caucus process, their candidate selection process, uh, opens with the inability to count 172,000 votes. What could be more emblematic of the collapse and the darkness, if you will, uh, of the shift than what we're seeing happening in the Iowa caucus right now? For a long time, and even as I ran for Congress myself two years ago, uh, there has been a tremendous amount of criticism for those who have disengaged from the American political process, a lot of shaming for those who have disengaged from the American political process. And yet, when you look at the American political process, the percentage of Americans that are even registered as Democrats, 20 to 25 percent of the population, the percentage of the population that's even registered as a Republican, 20 to 25 percent of the population, leaves literally the largest percentage of American voters as those who are neither Democrats or Republicans. In fact, the biggest voting block in any election is people who don't vote. And when you look at the his history of American politics, it wasn't always this way. There was a time uh, when American politics actually was at least perceived to have some integrity. That integrity, although most folks probably don't know this, and honestly, if I hadn't spent a few years as a political journalist myself, I wouldn't know this. Uh, but in the process of my time as a political journalist, one of the things that I learned was the story of the election of 1896 uh, with William Jennings Bryan, who was a, a functionally the equivalent of a Bernie Sanders, not necessarily politically, but as somebody who was inside of the Democratic Party, but outside of the Democratic Party, and it represented about a third of the electorate. And in order to secure the nomination for the Democratic Party in 1896, the Democratic Party made a deal with William Jennings Bryan to basically internalize everything that was associated with his platform, which was really driven by the, the politics of that time, were dominated by the consequences of the railroad um, that, and the monopolies, which, by the way, it's interesting that monopolies now dominate contemporary politics. It's just the Amazon monopoly or the Google monopoly, the digital monopolies, as opposed to the infrastructure monopolies that dominated our country or um, America, I should say. Uh, 120, 130 years ago. 
in that William Jennings Bryan moment, if you look at the voter participation rates before that time, you will see that there was 60, 70, 80, 90% participation. When the Democratic Party made the deal to internalize William Jennings Bryan's agenda representing the farmers of the Midwest into their overall platform, and then went on to secure all of William Jennings Bryan's delegates and get the candidate that they wanted to put forward in 1896 and advance their political agenda, they then fulfilled zero of their obligations and commitments and promises made to the William Jennings Bryan Bryan, um, delegates. And from 1896 forward, the alienation and, and betrayal that was felt in that moment has stayed with this country forever, and we have not seen voter participation go above 50 or 55 percent since. We've also seen, uh, even in in recent years, but if you get if you look, even Teddy Roosevelt was able to run really as a semi third party type candidate, but the calcification of the two party duopoly and its control over all of the political choices that are that are offered to every voter in this country have rendered the vast majority of the voters in this country alienated from the political apparatus. The thing with that is, and I will relate all this back to the shift, fear not, because really what I'm describing is the energetic and political chaos of that particular moment and this particular moment as a reflection of that particular moment. But what you're seeing in this moment is the implosion of both political parties, whether it is the implosion of the Republican Party around an open criminal, um, whatever your feelings may be about Donald Trump for or against, uh, there's no question he's a criminal. And I'm not talking about the Ukrainian nonsense. I'm talking about his his thieving and stealing and paying off people for decades in New York. Uh, he ran as a criminal. He, he, he ran as somebody who was an expert criminal who would use expert criminal practices uh, to administer the country. The Democrats, uh, perhaps without even intending to do it, uh, have been running as hypocrites uh, for decades now and have sort of proven uh, in just recent hours, not only are, are the, is, the, is the party of hypocrisy, it's a party of incompetence. Uh, and so the combination of incompetence, uh, hypocrisy and criminality, which are ba- the basic thematics of the two political parties, are interesting as America projects back, whether it's on the politics of Russia, whether it's on the politics of Europe, whether it's on the politics of South America, uh, America continues to position itself as some sort of uh, righteous authority upon the world, and yet its ability to actually act or behave in a way that has any apparent uh, relative superiority or higher level of integrity to any other country in the world uh, seems at the same time to be non-existent. Now, how does all this relate to the shift? It's obviously a description of chaos, but the thing to understand about the shift and the way that it is functioning is it reveals the darkest parts of ourselves and our countries, and it ultimately will force us and is forcing us to reconcile our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with our politics. Now, this goes in two directions. One, this becomes a nihilistic and very pessimistic narrative that can be used to facilitate a winner-take-all, no-consequences mentality, which is rampant in many parts of society, and it is part of that darkest aspects of the shift. It also can compel and is compelling a level of engagement within communities and between individuals that can allow people to engage and mobilize in a way that they stop waiting for the political apparatus to solve any problem for them as they realize that the mythology of American politics simply is not uh, lining up with the reality of who we are as people or, for that matter, who we want to be as people. And the thing that will surely happen here, regardless of future political outcomes, is the reckoning inside of America with the fact that it is really no better or perhaps no worse, but certainly no better than any other country in terms of its integrity or its politics is a profound cognitive dissonance that it creates an incredible challenge uh, for each of us individually and again, for each of us uh, or, or for all of us collectively. 
it leaves us with the with the with the need to make a personal decision which is one as we recognize the complete and utter failure of the american political apparatus are we going to use that recognition as a means to move to a darker place energetically or to a lighter place and my hope and my goal by initiating this conversation and by having uh, a very blunt and open conversations about this reality is that we can find one another in a way that we can choose a lighter and clearer vibration and move through the chaos as opposed to wallowing in the darkness or the powerlessness and the disempowering experience uh, of the entire political process. Now, I'm gonna, in my opinion, what happened in Iowa is actually a very good thing um, for the country. Hopefully, what happened in Iowa will render the Iowa caucuses irrelevant for the rest of time. Uh, why do I say that? Well, this is a country that has been poisoned by corn syrup, that is ba being bankrupted uh, by healthcare costs associated with diabetes, uh, not to mention uh, a, a land, literally an earth, that is being cultivated to grow corn at a level that is uh, incredibly unhealthy for the earth and incredibly unhealthy uh, for uh, everybody associated with the earth. And, and, and if you've ever wondered to yourself why it is that corn syrup and diabetes is so rampant in this country, look no further than the Iowa caucuses. Imagine creating a multi-billion dollar national health care crisis, which is what we've done with corn syrup, which is what we've done um, with diabetes, simply to pander to 172,000 caucus goers in Iowa. The reason ethanol was introduced, the reason there are corn subsidies, the reason corn syrup exists, again, a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar problem that is destroying the lives of countless Americans, or at least impairing and reducing the quality of that life, while simultaneously bankrupting our country on with healthcare costs, was caused explicitly by politicians seeking to win one of the 170 or 200,000 votes available in Iowa by giving away money to corn farmers. That type of decision-making should be abolished. That type of decision-making should go away. That type of decision-making going away is a direct and absolute uh, reflection of everything that was wrong with the old apparatus. And is in it without the shift, without, ironically, the effort to integrate, a failed effort to integrate technology into Iowa, nothing would be happening. And so as cataclysmic in a, as much as it's really a tempest in a teapot, so it's a cataclysm in a teapot, it is a, an anecdote that reflects the ending of an era that is long overdue to end. The issue is what shall replace it, and of course the fear whenever you have a rigid or fixed system like America has had in recent decades going into its implosion is whether it moves to a darker place or a lighter place. And at least in my opinion, the Trump presidency has represented a move more to, to the, those darker energies. And quite honestly, the Democratic Party's attempt to, to do whatever it is doing is no, is no better than, than obviously what Trump has offered, which is why, again, I, I believe and I understand why the largest voting bloc in this country is uh, one that does not vote. Uh, again, we can talk about this with some of the callers. You can also, of course, interact with us on Twitter after the show. But I, I do want to bring some of the callers into the dialogue. Our first caller today actually uh, comes to us out of Los Angeles. Connor Dubin um, is with us. Connor, are you there? Yes. Yes, I am. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm great. Great. You brought up a lot of amazing points in that opening monologue. Well, I mean, I'm happy to talk about anything that I just mentioned. I mean, interesting. What is it? What? What? What about what I just offered resonated with you? Just out of curiosity. Well, I think that there's just a there. There seems to be a tie-in between the the lack of voter registration and sort of maybe maybe uh, anticipating that politics is supposed to do something for us that it hasn't done, and it really hasn't done effectively, except during 
you know, an election year where we get all these promises and then nothing is delivered. And I think people, their, their will is broken. And I think if you've ever met anyone that, that's had their will broken, they give up. And um, that might have something to do with the lack of voter registration is that, you know, I know a lot of people that just say it doesn't matter anymore. And, and, and there might be, you know, to shed light on that, the whole Iowa caucus is really important, but it's also important to note, if you look at it from an economic standpoint, Iowa grows 90% of the entire planet's corn. That's not just an American thing. That is a... That's a global you know, poisoning. It's a global poisoning. It a, but it feeds cows, you know, and if you're going to have a Chinese middle class that wants to start eating meat, you know, there's more people that have a stake in Iowa than just the American people. And I'm not yeah. saying that's a good thing, but I'm saying if you're going to play the game, you got to know the rules of the game. And, you know, this country grows most of the world's food. I live in Los Angeles. If you drive from here to San Francisco... All you see is food. We don't need that many cherry trees for America. They're growing that for the planet. So, you know, I think that when it comes down to who's getting the money and why they're getting the money, that story needs to be told, you know, as well. And it's not just, uh, it, you know, certain parties giving these people money for the, of the vote. That food is going mostly uh, internationally. Yeah, I, I think um, you make a profound and significant point. Two thoughts occur to me just in listening to you. One, having been through a few countries over the past few months, whether, again, in Asia, in, in the Middle East, in Europe. I was obviously in, in, in Moscow, in Turkey, and then in, in, in Europe, and then also in Thailand and Hong Kong recently. What has what struck me is that that sense of, a total detachment of the political system from the people seems to exist literally in every country. And I think what's disappointing for certainly for me, and I suspect for others in America is, is the sense that America's political systems detachment from its people may not be that much different from the sense of detachment that the people in Russia feel from Putin or that the people in China feel from Z or that the people in Spain feel from Sanchez or, or down the line. And I think that, that on the one hand, that can be disempowering and depressing. On the other hand, it can be it can create a, there's a there's a more common political experience on the earth than perhaps anybody recognizes. And at the same time, there is a is there an there's an imperative for us to interconnect from country to country and place to place for the exact reason that you just described, because America has positioned itself not as the breadbasket or the, or the food center for itself, but as the food center for the earth, whether it's the feedstock out of Iowa that is feeding uh, steaks in China or whether it is the artichokes in California uh, that are going into pasta in Italy. The stakes for our inability, the, I would, how do I say this? The stakes for the disconnection between politics and the people is not an intangible event. It is a, it is a distinctly tangible event that I feel like you really drove, you certainly helped. I, I had not thought of what you said, Connor, which is that this is not about just the American experience, but the global experience when it comes to food. Yeah. And if I, and the way the context and I look at it, and I think I can maybe bring this back to the paradigm shift quickly, hopefully, is one thing I learned uh, from my econ professor was something called the law of comparative advantage. Uh, is it are you familiar with that? I am indeed. Sure. OK, so if you go around the, the world and if everyone just produces their own goods for their own people and tries to feed their own people, you can make a certain amount of goods. But if anyone just does what they are only good at, like maybe they have some sort of natural resource advantage. America has a ton of fresh water, a ton of arable land. China, only 30% of their land is arable. They literally can't grow food to feed their own people. So if you were to break the world up and only let people produce what they're good at, you can increase the planet's capacity. So you can increase oil if you, you, know, if you only make you know, the countries that have a very easy job of, of producing oil. They have less, less labor costs. They have less infrastructure costs. What happens is the world becomes very intertwined that any one country's political debate is really 
for the entire planet because we are so interconnected. What that, I think what happens over time is people begin to realize that and they begin to become disengaged. And to bring it back to the paradigm shift, which there is a parallel, is that I think what's happening now for so long, we've all been playing a game by the incorrect set of rules. And what do you mean? We, we've been focused on money, on you know, things that are very unfulfilling. You see it now with Instagram, in, you know, self, you know, it gets back into individuality and just this very, it's not, it's an existence that's not fulfilling. We're not valuing the correct things. And as a yeah. paradigm shift happens, as I saw it in my own life, when you wake up to the reality that you spent most of your life chasing things and using your energy for things that are unfulfilling, you know, one of three things can happen. You, you can either swallow your pride and keep doing what you're doing and go down an unfulfilling path. Uh, some people just, you know, it, it, it's a very depressing event for a lot of people to know that they have given up maybe relationships, giving up opportunities at the cost of something else that was fulfilled their ego and not their soul. And that is, that's kind of what I wanted to call in about uh, originally was just, you know, the, the symptom of that is this, this loneliness epidemic that I think is happening in this country. And there's a ton of articles on it that, you know, diseases of despair at an all time high, uh, you know, liver disease from alcoholism, suicide, drug addiction, um, and the, the health effects of loneliness, just the health effects of being in a, in a bad marriage. And that, that the, that, that's where we've gotten to. So you not only have a machine that's moving forward as it's been moving forward, but it's also left so many people behind. And those very people are not in a position of strength to, you know, put forward a vision for the new future, because there is a vision for the future. Somebody already came up with one and we're in it. We just didn't participate in its creation and it, it doesn't have our best interest in mind. That's yeah. That's I mean, listen, I, 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 what I'm thinking as I listen to you is I'm I, one I'm inspired quite honestly because I I think that I think the, one of the consequences of the loneliness and isolation that you speak to is the misperception that that other people are not recognizing and seeing and feeling the very things that you're describing when actually I believe much as half of the country has disengaged from the political system and views the political system as unproductive or counter to solving any real issue, I actually believe the number of people who actually comprehend that this paradigm shift exists and is underway is much larger than any of us actually recognize. It's part of the reason why um, we wanted, we wanted to, to do the experiment with this podcast was to try to put out a signal of awareness to allow people to hear from you in Los Angeles, people to allow people to hear from some of the other callers uh, that we have heard from and, and will hear from to create more of that sense of awareness. I think what's necessary at this point is a little bit of simply the recognition that however alone people may feel or however distressed people may feel, that they're actually far less alone than they believe themselves to be. And I think that the question goes back to the first, when we did the first episode of The Weatherman last Thursday, our first caller was talking about one of the darkest manifestations of the shift, which is the ease with which human trafficking can now be facilitated because of transportation and communication infrastructure being what it is. And that the tools to intervene on that, uh, or the, the the mechanism to intervene on that, is this idea of reach, rescue, and restore. And when you think about the epidemic of loneliness in general, the ability to make that reach is fundamental. And part of my intention in even raising the, the, the signal to initiate this Weatherman podcast is my own attempt to reach uh, into the community and create a platform for that dialogue. Uh, so that we can begin to rescue and restore one another. I, I guess what I'm getting at is awareness is the first step, and and this and and I really appreciate everything that you've said, Connor, uh, in, in that regard. In terms of making an effort to, to to make that contact in order to 
diminish the incredible sense of isolation that is only exacerbated by a sense of disconnection from uh, the community or the political process. I completely agree. And I, and I think there is a great deal of hope and, and probably a bigger opportunity now for people to start uh, that are feeling lonely or feeling like there is, you know, no way out to, to in, in employ the great technology we have. You know, I always say that, you know, you're, you're, you're amazing. Each person is really good at like five different things. It's how you put those things together that, that can create something that will empower you and empower other people. It's, it's those, that, that unique way you bring all those things together. And it's, you don't just have to be, you know, you know, just go to this job every day. You can create in this environment like you've never been able to create before. And personally, when I sort of saw what was going on and I left a, an entire career and wanted to sort of um, employ my skill set to, to try to do something about it. So I started writing a children's book series called Kate's First Mate. And I reach kids all over the country. And it's, it's designed to teach kids about healthy relationships. Um, relationships have become so disposable now. People just sort of like ghosting is a thing. Um, and, you know, we're not valuing partnership, longevity, and, and all the things that it, it's really necessary to, to build a healthy partnership, because at the end of the day, we are humans, we are tribal, we need to be in community. And the social media phenomenon is keeping us all isolated. And you almost have to work, I live in Los Angeles, it can be a very isolating city, yeah. um, much more so than New York. You know, New York, you're always around people, but in LA, you're either in your apartment or in your car. Your car. It's very yeah. There's not a lot of interaction. So it became, it, it all kind of came together that and I and I you know personally I think children's books are an amazing uh, tool uh, to teach not only kids but parents. Sometimes parents will read my books and say, you know, these are really for adults. And I was like, well, that's why you're reading it to your kids. Um, <laughs> and but and I love artwork. But for me to you know at, when I when I started writing at thirty, I had a career for ten years. And I, I thought I was ridiculous sitting down going to a coffee shop after my job writing a children's book. And, and that, mo that time where you just keep going, you keep persevering, and you will create out of it. And, and that experience will help your soul grow. It's going to help you through the paradigm shift, and it will be ultimately so fulfilling. Um, yeah. I just, Listen, Connor, just like, I, I, I appreciate your time. I, I've learned from you today, and I, and I appreciate that as well. And I, and I wish you all the best. Um, thank thanks, you. Thanks, Dylan. I'm a big fan. All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Take man. care. All right, uh, Michael Bedford with us right now in Ocean Shores, Washington. Michael, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to join the Weatherman Podcasting Network. No, listen, we're, that... we're delighted to have you. Where your Ocean Shores, Washington? Where where is that relative to Seattle? Let's say where are you? Um, I'm on the coast. I'm 200 miles away from Seattle. That's the crow flies. Spectacular. I've not miles. been. Is it is it beautiful, Michael? Oh, I love it here. I love it here. You get the I whales the there? You do, you do. And I also love to play in the ocean sand. I like to turn circles with a giant protractor using pie. No kidding, really. So it makes beautiful artwork. I, I also like to do that. it in the dark, too. Yeah. So what's on your mind? You're, I, 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 I don't know if there's anything that Connor and I or the monologue that resonates with you, or if you want to go to another direction, you're welcome to do that. I have a bit of a monologue to share with you. Go. Um, Okay. I believe that we are going through the paradigm shift, and clarity is needed to make the right decisions. I spend time anchoring gratitude and clearing the negative lineage back to its source, transmuted and healed. In doing so, I am healed. May you be blessed with your heart's desires. May you be blessed with good luck on your journey. Namaste. Finding clarity is key. I'm going through some major changes. With my mother's health, she had a stroke and is in rehab in a nursing home. So, you know, I'm dealing back with the government again. They are, you know, deciding her care. She's on Medicare, Medicaid, da-da-da-da-da-da. Are they going to take the house? Am I homeless? You know, I don't know. Time will only tell, you know. So how do you deal with the stress? So it's interesting because I think for all of us, you look at 
the big picture and you can see that the shift is underway and you can see the potential that the shift holds. But too often, the first thing that we all experience with the shift is some sort of a loss, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's a loss of faith in the political system, whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it is the loss of a home. It, what what I've been, what I've noticed in my own life and, and around me is one of the early signals of the shift is some sort of significant loss that forces us or forced at least forces me to wake up in a way to realize that a I'm not a, that what is outside of me is not the priority of my life, but also that I need to reframe my entire relationship with my entire world in order to move through the chaos created by those losses and by that stress in order to even find the clarity to move forward. Does that resonate with yeah, you? Yeah, I, I, have, I have to try and build positive and potent relationships with people that are, you know, that have the possibility of being something great. Like I just started joining the Pine Network and it's a cryptocurrency thing, and I got approved by know your for the know your customer. So that means I'll be able to spend the pie that I mined, and I had 800 pie. And so my goal of joining the pie network was to get a greenhouse for a charity, the North Beach okay. Senior Center. And so I spent 300 pie, and they're sending the greenhouse to the North Beach Senior Center so that can grow vegetables for the lunch program. And then really? I also, yes. Wow. And is that something that you would have done in the, were there, was there, was there some change or shift in your life over the, in recent years that even, that led you to, to even consider doing what you're doing now or what you just, what you just described? I'm trying to love whatever arises, whatever comes up in my life. Love that. Follow that. Try and build relationships with people. The Pine Network has 2 million point five million new pioneers in nine months. Wow. Using the Pi Network, I'm able to build relationships, and it's only through building this relationship on the Pi Network that I was able to transfer this Pi with this person. And so it's a, the Pi. So, it, so the Pi Network is literally a network effect of good deeds, basically. In other words, it's a currency. Good, good services. Goods and services, like products and services. You okay. People can trade for a pie. It's just like currency. Any other currency is like Bitcoin, except for it's mined on your phone. It's free to join. They, and so, they, but how do I produce the currency? On if you're on the Anchor app, um, the Pine Network. If you look under episodes, they have five episodes on there, and uh -huh. you'll be able to listen to that. And it's really quick and easy to listen to their podcast. And I only got to, and I only found out about. They only found out about it because you sent me your link to the weatherman, and I was able no to kidding. pass that information on to that community, and this is going to snowball into other languages. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's certainly part of the harmonics, Michael. Listen, thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate you giving me a piece of your day and, having, and introducing a new idea for us all. I do appreciate it. And I'm grateful for you. All right, listen. And may have you a be great blessed. Namaste. Right, Namaste. And namaste, namaste to you, my friend. Namaste to you. Our last caller today, Frank, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, Frank, where are you at? Where am I at? Well, I'm at my home office. I'm retired, and uh, I live in Northern California. So I really... So it's, uh, west, so it's, a, it's an all-West Coast show today because Connor was in L.A. Michael's up in Washington. I'm in San Francisco right now. So we're full, we're full, oh, okay. full West Coast today. At least we're all in the same time zone this time. Hey, how about that? Yeah, that's uh, I just happened to have a free uh, free couple hours, so I was able to awesome. dial in today while it wasn't the first show. But I resonated with your monologue and and, and, and almost probably everything you had that I heard and understood. What what and really also, lit up for you? Well, it's uh, I, I made some little notes here, and I'm, I'm categorizing this as a shift, um, and just a shift uh, paradigm is. You know, probably overused. <laughs> but anyway, it, it it gives me a framework to think about this whole um, whatever's happening, and you can you can, I can tell something's happening because you know, I'll be seventy three in April, so I've lived through a, a, some good generations after World War Two, and uh, you know, safety net and uh, and, and the uh, environment was created out of World War Two with Roosevelt and company. 
that's uh, been eaten away and almost gone now. As a benefit of the GI Bill, etc., was able to go to college. I had a good career. Then retired 12 years uh, working at, uh, you may have heard of it, maybe not, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy laboratory. Yeah. yeah. I have, I'm is, familiar with the labs. I, I, it's a, it's a, that's a smart bunch of folks. Yeah. So, so now I'm working with the homeless. Uh, for the last uh, almost 10 years, I've been working with the homeless on the streets uh, as a volunteer. Uh, occasionally, I uh, had a pay, paid episode for 15 months, uh, but currently back to volunteer status. So what America doesn't want to get out is how we treat our underbelly. And as a matter of fact, if you recall, uh, there was a U.N. inspector that came to San Francisco and a few other uh, countries. Well, countries and cities about a year and a half ago wrote the Skaden report uh, profiling San Francisco and other cities how bad and high the poverty rate was. And of course, uh, I think he, it was Nikki, Nikki Haley was with the UN and her job was to refute that. Of course, we can't admit anything like that to the rest of the world. But I'll tell you what, it's it's very brutal out there how we treat the you know undeserving poor. Yeah, well I would say the um, one of the, the one of the consequences <laughs> of the shift is the effort to consolidate resources by those who have them is at an all time high. There's an incredible oh, yeah. grab for consolidation of resources that is staggering that we're all seeing. And at the same time, the same way that the, the political establishment wants to <clears throat> to perpetuate the myth that the system that the political system has it has a is functioning and has integrity the other consequence of the shift is that it reveals the darkest parts of our shadow whether it's our individual shadow and the individual lies and contradictions and hypocrisies of our own individual lives and a reckoning that is brought forth with that or whether it's the broadest social issues whether it was the human trafficking or the, the, the incredible poverty and abuse that exists among the homeless in this country. And, and whether we like it or not, you can't treat cancer if you don't admit you have cancer. And as unpleasant as some of these subjects are, I, I, I don't see how they can ultimately be addressed or reconciled if they're not even acknowledged to exist. And I think one of the great benefits of the shift, whether we like it or not, is that whatever Nikki Haley or whoever, and I don't mean that you pick on any particular individual, but anybody who's attempting to cover up or obscure uh, the darker aspects of what's going on in this world, that their ability to do that is at an all-time low because the shift forces the truth of these things to the surface. Don't you think, Frank? I do it myself. The power of the shift, or one of the powers of the shift, is the fact we have the internet and we can talk to anybody anywhere. All we need is an audience. So part of what I'm doing is uh, I, I don't write a lot myself, but I can find a, a lot of articles and support, in this case, of, of uh, helping people that are homeless or in poverty and broadcast that out as an educational tool. So I see the part of the shift as kind of... Um, almost a boutique news kind of like this says here it's kind of a boutique uh environment to get your message out whatever that might be right um, well, it also reminds me of, the, of, of Dee marie's point last week which is reach rescue and restore when you identify uh -huh. a dark piece of the shadow and what you're describing I, I i hear you and i hear you reaching i hear you reaching with the intent to help rescue and restore and the point is to your just to reiterate the point you're making the shift provides a platform to expand our ability to reach in a, in a meaningful way by surfacing and creating awareness uh, around these issues, which is profound and significant, uh, even if sometimes it's frustratingly slow and, and, and there's an incredible amount of suffering that happens that all of us obviously would like to mitigate oh, yeah. much faster than we're able. Yeah, it's definitely a long and slow, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a looking, uh, if you look at a stepwise process, so one of the things that I put on the table, if you want every homeless person to be off the streets and they have no income and no ability to income, are you, county, you, city, willing to pony up the bucks to pay the rent? 
you know, that's that's a real issue, uh, especially in California. As you, of course. <laughs> we no, have a, of course. a serious, serious housing problem, both in the lack of housing as, as well as affordability. And then on the, you know, we talk about, if you're familiar with the jargon of homelessness, it's the housing first model, which says you want to get people into housing first, and then you bring the services in and treat them. It's a lot more cost effective, but number one, you got to have the housing. Number two, you got to have the services. We don't have either. We have we have enough services to say we have services, and we try to think let people think that they're enough, but they're way short. You know, if you look at a case manager who should have a caseload of maybe thirty people, they may have a hundred if they're lucky, which means maybe you get to see them, uh, you know, once a month when they need maybe daily attendance. So we're really, really, really undersourced, and to the point of uh, at the federal level, since Trump has been in office, uh, HUD, who's a major financer of, of homeless efforts, they've tried to cut the budget by uh, it's, it's only about you know, pushing 40 billion, but they've tried to cut it by 10 plus billion in the last three budget years. But for whatever reason, Congress didn't go along with it, and they've kept it at uh, would be 15, 16 levels. And this last go around, they actually increased a little. Still not. It's still pocket change to the size of the problem, which really is turns into uh, two aspects. One is they've demonized socialism, and uh, but that is in effect what I like, love Robert Rice, and he says, you know, socialism is okay for the capitalists, but not for the people that need it. Um, so we do whatever we have to to, to take care of the uh, the people with money, but the people with no money, we want to make sure that they have a miserable life. And uh, you know, it turns into. But, a, but again, start. I don't even think that that's reflective of the consciousness of most of the people. I think that's really just a reflection of the consciousness of the very few people that control most of the resources and the power. And I think where we run into, oh, yeah. where we do ourselves a disservice is we assign some of the, the personality characteristics that are the most hostile within the political and power communities as being more prevalent in society, when I actually think the vast majority of the members of the, peop of the people in our society are actually much more positively inclined to be in contact and helpful to one another beyond the fact that they're frequently consumed by their own chaos and their own effort to understand what this shift actually is. And I think we can actually do all of ourselves a favor. And I do it myself because I generalize. I'm like, oh, well, no, but be all the, this and the whole thing is, you know, has all these negative aspects. But I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we, when we project the negative characteristics of the tip of the sphere of power in this country onto society at large. Well, yeah, I agree 100%. And that's, uh, one of the, the battles I'm personally fighting here and a few others, like I say, there's very limited number of people that uh, have the time or the ability to jump in and, and dig deep into the subject. But it's the issue of they want to, our people keep saying, well, oh, the homeless people are all, they got either mental health or drug abuse issues and or both. And uh, data is now showing that's a secondary factor, and it's really the overarching issue is the economy. Um, and, and I got a simple thing, a three-step process if you're homeless. Number one, you ask, can you pay the rent? And then if the answer is no, then you look to family and friends and maybe some faith-based organizations. If they say no, we can't help you. And the last is the government. The government can't help you. You're homeless. And drugs and alcohol are really... Uh, secondary to that that really that issue in America is it's all about money. You find me a landlord who'll let you stay there free or get a mortgage that you don't have to make payments on. So sure, alcohol and drugs are contributing factors, and uh, it, it goes back to the issue of, of the despair issue. And if, uh, I think Connor mentioned that the three leading causes now of, of death, the, the out, outpace like the Vietnam uh, deaths and car deaths or suicides, drug overdoses, and alcoholism. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't say much about alcoholism because, what well, it's legal. And uh, in any of these cases, people that are housed, there's far more people that have mental illness that are housed, that drink that are housed, that use drugs, especially prescriptions that are housed. And we only really care nominally because they're visible, make them invisible again. And, and the problem goes away, right? So there's a lot of false energy just to get them out of sight. 
and not really really helping them be functioning adults. Right, well, it's the opposite of reach, rescue, and restore. It's deny, isolate, and 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 uh, yeah. ignore. And so yeah, I think yeah. that the opportunity with the shift is to is for all of us to to be more conscious in the micro. You know, one of the things that I've realized because we talk about all of our grand values, or I talk about my values and what I believe or what I think or what I'm trying to do and my grand ambitions and whatever it may be. And I'll just talk about you know myself in this context. But what I realized is you know really the quality of my contribution to my day and and the other people that I interact with in every given day. Is, is entirely driven by the micro decisions that I make from one second to the next and the micro emotions that I experience from one second to the next. And am I opening myself and am I offering my best self to any individual that I interact with at any time in those micro decisions? Or am I living inside of the illusion of my desire to help and my claim to help and my offering to help? But am I making micro decisions along the way that are actually fear-based and isolation-based and am I doing more the ignore, isolate, uh, the ignore and isolate paradigm, or am I actually reaching? And, and what I really appreciate about what you're saying is uh, that the opportunity to reach is consistent and, and, it's, and it's there, Frank. And I think that, you know, for all of us, there's a gap between whatever our, 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 our purpose and our ambition is and our awareness of our micro decision making from one second. Uh, to the next, Frank. I really appreciate your time today and being and being part of this second episode uh, of the Weather Man. I hope you have a great afternoon. All right. Well, just uh, last thing is, I you sure. know I, I experienced I experienced the world through uh, you know hands-on stuff as well as uh, YouTube and the internet, but I also read. There's a couple. I think I mentioned back to the lady uh, uh, a Megan. book that just came. Uh, uh, Megan, a, a, a book that just came out that even makes this discussion more interesting and more necessary is it's called the future is faster than you think have you heard of that one i have not what's the what's the premise it's, not, it's a great title well the, the uh i've just read the first couple chapters that are super interesting because these people claim that the next big thing this is all technology based so okay. well the first part at least is technology based so the first proclamation they're making 2020 this year is going to be years that self-autonomous self-driving cars take off it's a done deal they're forecasting that in 10 to 15 years to drive a regular car gas goes are you going to need a special permit um maybe far-fetched but anyway it gives you an idea of how serious this is uh the second part of that is, is uh next year they're talking about a uber type of air taxi It'll be more or less a four-person drone with a driver with a, with a pilot that's going to shuttle people around and uh, go after L.A. And, and you know one of some of the worst traffic in the world. And they're talking about kind of uh, airports, which could be repurposed parking garages that would serve as kind of drone ports to shuttle you know land people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. They sound real serious about that. The, the technology is going to be all electric battery-powered uh, motors. So the noise, if they compare it to a helicopter versus this, it's going to be like night and day. Um, so Which, again, what, is remarkable. I think that one of the things that, that, that the thought that occurs to me as I listen to you is obviously the, the issue is that while the rate of change, with, and you're talking about the rate of change in the transportation infrastructure right now, but, again, it can be applied to almost everything. There's a huge yeah. gap between the rate of change that is technically possible and the rate of change of humans. And at the same time, right, right. Oh, yeah. work with, because the rate of change of humans is a linear rate of change. It's not an asymmetrical rate of change. And, I, and, it, and again, the political crisis that's, that is coming because of the absence of work that has been foundational to the functioning of our economy over the past hundred years is much much bigger than i think anybody actually realizes to your point because as drivers go away as pilots i mean there's so many so there's so much work uh that is going to be taken over by the robots i do think that we don't fully appreciate how profound that shift is going to be and how significant how revolutionary the way we live and function and function as an economy is going to have to become yeah i think that's the in, in those few words that you just said uh, are, are are basically the the whole 
wraps the whole thing up in a few sentences, and that 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 delta is is, is growing larger and exactly. it's, and it's increasing faster, and we're seeing now what we're seeing now in the poverty poverty situation and the and the jobless, which is really if you look at the numbers in the jobless, uh, you know, Fed's put out a unemployment rate of three whatever it is <clears throat> but if you look at the actual number of people that want to work and the people aren't working that goes up to 37 percent i think exactly <laughs> so exactly. in that bubble of 37 percent with large part of those people are people that were they found jobs in construction and 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 you know and and where they had education through eighth grade or whatever may have been able to get you a job for life but that whole sector has shrunk and those people have become surplus. As a matter of fact, there's a book called Surplus American. Uh, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to. Um, and it's got a little play at the end. Uh, read the play, and uh, it's really fascinating. And the, I, I absolutely thing, will, Frank. Thank you. <laughs> the last. Thanks for the recommendations. Thing, book just came out by All Nicholas right. Kristoff and Cheryl Wooden. It's called Tightrope. Okay. And it's address it's addressing this whole issue also. They don't talk about a paradigm shift or a, per se. They talk about a, a, a family that grew up in rural Oregon and what's happened to all the all the people because of the economic shift. Mm -hmm. a fascinating book. So yeah. just and, another. And I think that that's the point is that there's an increasing awareness of this dynamic, and I think we maybe end up spending too much time sometimes on the negative consequences of that shift. But if we're not honest about those negative consequences at the same time, it's impossible to actually move forward to begin that process to reach rescue and restore. Frank, I do. I really appreciate your making the time to talk with us today uh, here on uh, The Weatherman. I am Dylan Radigan, and this has been our second uh, experiment uh, with a live call-in program, uh, again, uh, to discuss the fundamental shift that exists across the world right now and both its negative and positive consequences. This is something that we'll continue. We'll do our next episode uh, of The Weatherman likely on Tuesday uh, of next week. We'll be doing this once a week uh, for the foreseeable future, and then we'll adapt uh, as it makes sense going forward. But again, I, I want to thank everybody for uh, both engaging, calling. For those of you who are listening, I, I appreciate your time and attention. We welcome your feedback, whether it's on Facebook or on Twitter or on the Anchor app. Uh, again, uh, if you're interested or enjoying the concept, the content, or the premise of this, I encourage you, obviously, to share it uh, with others as we begin the process of not only doing this experiment, but looking to expand the community around this experiment. Uh, and with that said, uh, I am Dylan Radigan, and it has been a pleasure to be your weatherman uh, on this Tuesday afternoon, and we'll talk to you again soon.